Well, Paul has been relentless in talking about how people tend to be in denial. He has talked about how immoral people are in denial about their need for God, how moral people are in denial about their need for God, and even how religious people are in denial about their need for God. And as Paul continues his letter to the church in Rome, and he kind of closes out this section of the letter, we're going to see that people of every description are in denial of their need for God. And while he's writing to the church in Rome, understand that he is speaking of humanity as a whole. Not necessarily believers versus unbelievers, not at this point in the letter, but he's speaking of humanity as a whole and laying the foundations. And he puts everyone together in this summary of this first section, and he talks about how everyone needs God. And first, he shows us our need for God by helping us to look at the thoughts we think. That's our first point, the thoughts we think. Look at verse 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. It's the idea of, is anyone better than anyone else? Does race make us better than anyone else? Does religion make us better than anyone else? And though Paul is thinking specifically of the Jewish people, that race and that religion, he makes it clear that no one is any better than anyone else. Why? Because we are all under sin, he says. Now that word sin, it means to miss the mark. The idea is that we might even be trying to hit the mark, but we fail to do so. That's different than the word that's translated offense, which is found in chapters 4 and 5 many times. So you have the word sin, and you have the word offense. The word offense means to cross the line. It's to intentionally cross the line. My youngest daughter, Megan, when she was younger, she was in archery. And we would go to her archery tournaments. And the whole point of archery is to try to hit the mark, try to hit the bullseye. Now, in the game of basketball, if any of you played basketball, you know that you're trying to make the basket. Except there is one situation where you're trying to miss the basket. That's at the end of the game, you're down by a couple of points, and you're at the free throw line. And one point's not going to do it to win the game, so you actually intentionally miss in hopes that you'll get the rebound and score the basket to to tie up the game or go ahead. So you will actually try to miss a free throw. So you see, there's a big difference in motive, right? To try to miss, or to try to make it but miss, versus intentionally trying to miss. I say all that to illustrate the difference between sins and offenses, If the the player aims but misses, that illustrates, well, you missed the mark, you tried, but you missed. If the player doesn't aim, or worse, they aim at something else entirely, well, that is an offense. That's when they have crossed the line. And the same thing is true in our lives. There are times when I don't set out to do wrong, I don't deliberately avoid doing right, I may try to do the right thing, but just fail to do so. That is a sin. That is missing the mark. And then there's other times where I see where the line is. I can see clearly that that right here, I'm obedient, but over there, I'm disobedient. And I intentionally cross the line. That would be an offense. And when Paul says here that we're all under sin, so he's talking about sin, he's talking about missing the mark, 
Then he says we're all under sin. That word under has the idea of being under the power of something. It's to be under the power of sin and unable to break free from it. It's like Paul, he's personifying sin as if you and I had been abducted. Sin is the abductor, and we are the abductees. Paul is helping us understand that we are all abductees under the power of sin. That's his point in these opening chapters. Before he tells us what God has done about all of that, which he'll get to, he, at this point, he's helping us to see that we're under sin so that we can see how much we need the Lord. So Paul, now he begins quoting from the Old Testament just one verse after the other. Look at verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, in the book of Romans, there are more than 75 quotations or allusions to the Old Testament. And even though we understand this letter to be a Bible book that's that's part of the New Testament, all Paul had was the Old Testament. And he took the Old Testament, he took that as being the Word of God. And he brings that over, he quotes it often in his writings. Now, there are at least six quotations in these verses that we're studying, maybe even more. But the first, which is the, the three verses that we just read, it comes from Psalms, uh, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. So let's kind of break that down. The first thing Paul says is, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, notice the absolute qualifier And it's not the first absolute qualifier. We find the word all three times in our text, in verse 9, 12, and 19. And we find the word none four times in our text. Twice in verse 10, once in verse 11, and once in verse 12. So he's using these absolute qualifiers, all and none. And here he says, there is none righteous. Now, sometimes that word righteous kind of scares us because we... Well, it sounds like theological jargon, or this, maybe it's this certain level of holiness that we'll never be able to a, a, attain. But really, you could shorten the word righteous to the word right. To be righteous is to be right. It's to be right with God. It's to have a right relationship with the Lord. So the idea here is that no one in and of themselves has that. A lot of people, they have this idea that somehow when we're born, that we're, we're good with God, you know, we're right with him, and then only those who at some point in time, they just kind of veer off course, and then they go from being right with God to being wrong with God. But most people just stay right with him. That's what some people believe. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that we're born wrong with God. We're not in a right relationship with him. And then we come to that age where we're mature enough to understand and to make a decision for Christ, to make a decision about Jesus. And we each have to do that individually. We have to step over that line of faith to go from being wrong with God to being right with God. So look at the next thing it says there in verse 11. There is none who understands. Now, certainly, when it comes to spirituality, there are things we understand 
but there are also things that we don't. And one thing that we don't understand is his rightness. We underestimate the holiness of God. When we think about God, no matter how high uh, our thoughts are, they're not high enough. We never think as highly of God as he could be thought of because he is infinitely holy and our thoughts are finite. So he's beyond what we can even think of. Now, on the other hand, we don't comprehend our wrongness because at the same time that we underestimate God's holiness, we tend to overestimate our own. We think we're better than we really are. We think we're so much more like God than we really are. We think we're so much holier than we really are. So Paul wants us to see that we just don't understand this. We don't get this. There is none who understands. And then the next thing in verse 11, there is none who seeks after God. Now, if you know someone who is not a follower of Jesus, but they're sort of interested, um, you know, maybe they're starting to read some some book that you gave them, or they're starting to read the Bible for the first time, and there's someone that you might refer to as being a seeker, like they're seeking after God. And we all know what that means. We know what we mean by that, but it's important to keep in mind what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we don't go to Jesus because we are seeking him, but because he is seeking us. And it's so amazing to see what the Bible says about God as being the one who seeks after us. In Luke chapter 15, there are three stories, three different stories about lost things. There's the lost sheep, there's the lost coin, and the lost son. And in the first story, the lost sheep, the shepherd seeks the sheep. In the story of the lost coin, the woman who lost it goes and seeks after it. And then there's a difference there in the story about the lost son. It's true that in the story, the son comes home to the father. But don't miss that the father, he's waiting for his son to return home. His eyes are scanning the horizon. He's looking, he's watching, and the minute he sees his son The father does something that was considered very undignified at the time. He gets up and he runs after his son. He runs to meet him. God loves us, and he is the one who seeks us. He pursues us. He pursues after us. Think about when Adam and Eve, uh, they sinned in the garden. And it talks about in the book of Genesis that they were hiding from God. And it was God who took the initiative. It was the Lord who said, he called after Adam and said, where are you? Where are you, Adam? The Lord pursued him. Now, God does invite us to pursue him. There are passages you find in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, where it says, from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. And similarly, in Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. But the amazing thing is that we seek him only after he is seeking and searching for us. And he meets us there. 
Now look at verse 12, where it says, they have all turned aside. This is a military term in the original Greek language. It's a military term that's used a lot like we would use the term AWOL. The idea is that just like how, how we would use the term uh, AWOL, uh, or referring to someone who's absent without leave, a lot of us are spiritually AWOL. The idea is that we've taken a spiritual detour. Do you ever use your apps, in your, the map apps on your phone to get where you're going, and you kind of don't know where you're going? Or, or maybe those, there's those times that you, you're pretty sure where you're going to go, but you're going to use the apps, the, the map apps, so you can find the fastest route. And then you ignore it. Like, you're like, you know what? That's not right. I think I know a faster route. I'm going to go a different way because this has got to be wrong. And, and you, you do that, and you, you take the, the different route, and more often than not, you're like, man, I should, I should have listened to the map. I should have listened to my apps. I did that in Houston once. And Houston's not the place you want to take the shortcut. And, and actually, there was one time, it, it was taking me the shortcut, but it got me off the main highway, and I was turning and going through so many lights and turning. It's like, I should have just stayed on the highway. Well, in your life and in mine, we often take spiritual detours. Not because God hasn't given us his word, to guide us, and not because he isn't trying to speak to us as we pray or as we get counsel from wise people around us, but a lot of times we're just not listening or we're not paying attention and we're not acting on those things or we think we know better. And Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It's a scary thing to think about how we could be headed in a direction that doesn't end well for us and yet be convinced in our own minds and be convincing to others when we're talking to other people and that we're doing the right thing. We have all turned aside. That's what that's referring to. The next thing it says in verse 12, they have together become unprofitable. Interestingly, the Greek word translated unprofitable means to make useless to render unserviceable. And it was used to describe rotten fruit or spoiled milk. When I was a kid, I remember going to my grandparents' house and making a bowl of cereal, and I poured the cereal in the bowl. Then I reached in the refrigerator and grabbed the milk, and it was pretty full, and I opened it, and I started to pour the milk in, and nothing came out until something did come out, and it was like in clumps. I was like, oh, what, what is this? It was disgusting. I'd never seen that before. Apparently, they don't drink milk by the gallon like I did when I was a kid. It would never spoil at my house. But that's the picture you need to have in your mind when it says that they have together become unprofitable. They become like spoiled milk. The idea is that when we're in that place, when we're in denial about our need for God, we can't fulfill our God-given potential as he designed. And we do have a purpose. It's true that God made us on purpose, that our creation it was deliberate, it was by design, and in making us on purpose, he makes us with a purpose. God has a purpose for your life. He has a purpose for my life. 
So we don't want to miss that, right? When you think about that God has a purpose for your life, you don't want to miss that. You, you don't want to fall short of that. That means you want to be profitable for him, for the kingdom. Well, the next thing it says here in verse 12 is that there is none who does good, no, not one. Which is kind of funny because almost everyone would say, well, well you know, wait a minute. I do know somebody who's good. I know this person, I know this relative of mine, they're a good person, but good is a relative term, isn't it? I mean, talking about, just thinking about something like movies. And I know we have some big movie fans here, especially when it comes to Marvel or DC uh, characters. And I was just verifying before the service that I had this right, Uh, but Many would say, well, that the DC Justice League, I think, was the movie, right? And, you know, that's, it's good, yeah, for, for DC. And then, but you talk about Marvel, and like, oh, no, that's like way up here. In relation to DC, Marvel is like this much better. Uh, the Avengers and all of the movies, and actually most people would say, at least the survey I took this morning, every Marvel movie is way up here and DC is down here. Now, that just shows that's relative, and of course, that's based on opinion. But the same, tra- same thing is true when it comes to people. We all know people who we might think are relatively good. And I'm sure you are likely a good person in the way that we use that terminology. But if you parse the verb translated who does there in verse 12, it is a present participle, which means that it refers to a continuous or repeated action. So Paul is saying, what he's saying there is that no one is consistently or continually good. On your best day, you need God. On your best day, you need forgiveness. On my best day, I need infinite amounts of grace and mercy from God. In Mark's gospel, there was the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus and he asked Jesus, and you find it in Mark 10, verse 17. He says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus says something very interesting in verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. And in an absolute sense, It's as Paul said here, there is none who does good, no, not one. Only God. And Jesus' point is that he is good because he is God. But the, the point here, the thoughts we think, so much of this has to do with our attitudes and those things that I understand or don't understand in the way that I think about myself and the way that I think about others. The thoughts that I think. Paul says, look, if you think about your thoughts, if you think about what goes on inside of your head, you will see your need for God. We need God. Well, the next thing that he points out is the words we say. In verses 13 and 14, the words we say. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. 
A University of Arizona study found that most people speak about 16,000 words per day. And they even clarify, men, women, it's the same, 16,000 words per day on average. Now, you can debate that amongst yourselves. But those are just the words that we speak, not having anything to do with the words that we write, the words that we email, the words that we text. And some of the words we use are good, and some of the words are not good, but they all matter. And that's why we need to talk about our talk. That's why we need to see what God has to say about what we have to say. If you look at verse 13, it says, their throat is an open tomb. Now, this quotation is from Psalm 5, verse 9. Paul is saying that their words stink, that our words smell of uh, decomposition and rot. I mean, that's some bad breath coming out of their mouth. And then the next thing he says is, with their tongues, they have practiced deceit. Now, let's talk about that, but let's begin by talking about the lies that we are told by other people, because that's easier to deal with first. Have you ever wanted to give someone a polygraph test? Like, you know, you're listening to someone talk, and you're thinking, yeah, you're lying. That's not right. And you wish you could pull out like a briefcase that you carry around. And in that briefcase, you've got a polygraph test. And you, hey, why don't you hook yourself up to this and let's see if you're telling the truth or not. Now, obviously, you can't do that. But what you may or may not know is that there are other signs to look for. A person's body language says a lot about whether they are being truthful. According to Tracy Brown, a body language and persuasion expert, she says, the body can't lie. She says that learning to read the subtle signs that tell us when a person is lying is an enormous advantage in our personal and our business relationships. For example, do they avoid eye contact? Do they touch their nose? Because apparently, you know, if you're lying, you touch your nose. Are they fidgety the whole time that they're talking? Do they answer questions that you didn't even ask? Do they overemphasize certain details to the exclusion of addressing other details? Now, keep in mind that these are signs that are just possible indicators of dishonesty, not definite proof. It helps to have a track record, which you know what their baseline behavior is. Plus, some people are so seasoned at lying they might get away with not exhibiting any of these signs. So if you do go to lunch with somebody today, and you're seeing them across the table, you know, and they start touching their nose, maybe it's just allergies, right? I mean, we have allergies going on right now. Maybe they are telling the truth. But these are just possible indicators that someone is lying to us. But it's not just about the lies that we are told. It's also the lies that we tell ourselves. Because we do tell lies. Should I ask? Should I take a survey? How many of us are willing to admit that we do tell lies? I saw, I saw a couple of these. Just a little. More than one-third of people admit to lying on their resumes. More than a third. According to a national on, online survey, 60 to 80% of respondents lied to their doctors at some point about various aspects of their daily routine, such as diet and exercise. 
Think about the last time you went to the dentist. And they ask, do you brush your teeth every day? Do you floss every day? Did you lie about that? And most people that say they do lie to their doctors or the dentist, they say they do so because they don't want to get a lecture. That makes sense. And it might be hard to believe, but some medical professionals say that there are some circumstances in which it is acceptable to lie to a patient. Perhaps more unbelievable is the fact that some admit to have, having done it. In a recent survey by the website Medscape, doctors and nurses, including advanced practice registered nurses, they responded to questions about veracity in three categories. One is medical errors, 17%. Patients' prognosis, 14%. And over a quarter, over 25% said that they, they admitted to lying so they could get reimbursement or treatment for a patient. Now, all of the, what I just said about, you know, resumes and lying to the doctors and doctors lying to patients, all of that is assuming that they aren't lying on the surveys. Because actually, that is a big problem as well. People are not honest in surveys. You can't trust those. So they have to factor in a margin of error. So there is that. There is lying that takes place. And then it says, the poison of asps is under their lips. And that comes from Psalm 140, verse 3. Now, an asp, that is a venomous snake. And in both Egypt and Greece, its venom was used as a means of execution for criminals who were thought to be deserving of a more dignified death. So in a way, it was lethal injection back in the day to use their poison from, from these snakes. As we think about all of this, could someone say of us, yeah, I don't want to talk to that person. I don't want to talk to them. They're dangerous. Because you never know what they're going to say. You never know what hurtful words are going to come out of their mouths. You don't know how cruel that person can be. Many years ago, Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India, and she wrote a little uh, book about love called If. And she has this one saying in the book that really stands out, the many great things about it, but one thing that really stands out, she said, if a sudden jar can cause me to speak an impatient, unloving word, then I know nothing of Calvary love. For a cup brimful of sweet water cannot spill even one drop of bitter water, however suddenly jolted. And you can try this at home today. When you get home, get a big cup and fill it with whatever you want to fill it with and set it on the dining room table and then shove that table as hard as you can. And as you do that, no matter how hard you shove that table, there's nothing that's going to come out of that cup except what was already inside the cup. If you put soda in it, milk is not going to come out. Whatever you put inside of it, that's what's coming out of it. And a lot of times we want to say things like, well, the only reason I said that is because you said that. The only reason I reacted that way is because, well, you startled me or because that was so hurtful or so painful. Okay, but you know what? It has to be there in the first place. Now, notice in verse 14, it says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, that comes from Psalm 10, verse 7. So here's the thing. 
that happens. And a lot of times, if we use language that we wouldn't normally use, or if we say, or, or if what we say is just so bitter and so resentful, a lot of times, as soon as we say that, we say, well, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. And sometimes it's the next day when you have that the next day talk about the previous day talk with someone, and you say, well, you know, I didn't mean that. And they're like, but, but did you? No, 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 I, I didn't mean that. Really? Is it that you didn't mean that or that you didn't mean to say that? Because those are two completely different things. And most of the time, when we say, I didn't mean that, we did. We actually did. And it's just that the filter that would normally keep us from saying that, the filter was off. And without that filter being on, it just, it just gushed out. It spilled out. You never meant to say it, but you did mean it. It's what you think. It's what you believe. It's how you feel. And some of us may need to have some hard conversations and revisit some things with someone regarding our words. Was it that you didn't mean it or that you didn't mean to say it? And where do we go from here with it? And we could even be in a place where we feel justified, that we don't even realize how deep our words cut and how much we hurt that person. So things to pray about, things to consider. So Paul, he's lumping everyone together, all of us, who might otherwise think we don't need God and think, oh, well, we're fine. We don't need forgiveness. Well, he's lumping all of us together and says, I want you to think about your thoughts. I want you to think about your words. And then finally, the third point, the things we do. The things we do, beginning in verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We'll stop there. Now, look at the comparison. Glance back at verses 13 and 14, and notice the words throat, tongue, lips, and mouth. And it's all up here, right? It's, in, it's around the mouth. And here in verse 15, you have the word feet. So Paul is now helping us to understand that we're talking about the entire person, every part of us from head to foot. And as he talks here about feet, he's talking about the way or the path that we're on. I like to walk, um, especially when the weather's nice, to go for a walk. Sometimes when our schedules line up, Heather and I, we will go for a walk together around the neighborhood. And we really love to hit the trail, uh, to go hiking in the mountains. That's our favorite thing to do when we go on vacation. We go to the mountains, we go hiking. The average American walks three to 4,000 steps per day, or roughly a mile and a half to two miles. And that's everything. That's walking to the bathroom, walking to the kitchen, walking from the kitchen back to the couch. I mean, it's everything. That's the average. But recent guidelines say that on average, we should walk at least four miles a day just to maintain our fitness level. And we should walk six miles a day to improve stamina and endurance and fitness. And that all accounts for both active and the passive walking that we all do within a day. But here in these verses, we learn about how the way that we walk is a metaphor for how we live our lives. 
Look at verse 15 where it says, their feet are swift to shed blood. That comes from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 and 8. As do the next uh, two things that we're, we're going to read. But we have this metaphor for our lives. And we could certainly talk about violence. We live in a violent world, and we could talk about all the crime statistics, all the violence that we see on TV and in the media. We can do all of that. But in the last few weeks, we've referenced what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, if you hate someone, it's as though you murdered them. If you have hate in your heart to someone, it is as murder. So God cares about what is inside of us that would cause us to want to harm someone. He cares about that. And it it continues. It says, verse 16, destruction and misery are in their ways. In the book of Acts, uh, the way is the name for Christianity. It's referred to as the way. It's not commonly used today, but it was in the book of Acts. And five times in the book of Acts, it's called, the, Christianity is called the way. And speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also talked about there being two uh, very different ways that a person can go in their life. In Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. And so Paul says that without God, we are destructive and miserable. Just think about life and think about your life and think about the lives of other people. And certainly there are those times when my actions have been destructive or my words have been destructive. Some of us would have to admit that at one time or another, we have destroyed some of the best things in our lives, and in the lives of others. And when that happens, we make ourselves miserable when that happens, and we make other people miserable. That's why we need God. That's where he's going with all this. He's pointing and repointing and continuing to point to the fact that we need God because of all of these things. In verse 17, he continues, The way of peace they have not known. You know, we can certainly think of all the wars that have happened even in the last hundred years. Uh, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, the Cold War, the Persian Gulf, the Middle East. Think about how, how much war has changed. You know, you watch those movies of war, the Revolutionary War, where the people just lined up and did shot and then just waited to be shot. And then, like, somebody realized, there's more strategy we could be using here. You know, we could kind of approach this differently. But now, it's, there's cyber warfare. There's information warfare going on. It's just a whole different level. But that's, that's physical war, what if, in the contrast to peace. But what about the peace in us? What about peace in our lives? Jesus says, that, or he is, the Bible says that Jesus is the prince of peace. He is the one who can give us true peace in our hearts. Well, then in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that comes from Psalm 36, verse 1. 
And of course, Proverbs 9, verse 10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So when someone doesn't have that fear of the Lord, that respect for God or, or that we call the fear of the Lord, when we're not in awe of who he is and, and don't think about God, that person is not approaching life with knowledge and understanding. So there's, there's that need to recognize that God, uh, recognizing God for who he is, for who he is. So coming out of this section of all these Old Testament quotations, let's look at these final two verses that we're going to look at this morning that summarize all of that, verses 19 and 20. It reads, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul points out that this description of our utter sinfulness comes to us in the law. It is intended for those who are under the law, uh, talking about the Jewish people and the law of God. And it's to silence every critic and to demonstrate humanity's universal guilt. And if verses 10 through 18 are like, an indictment, and they are, then verse 19 is like the arraignment. And the idea is that when people stand before God, they're going to be speechless. We recently talked about judgment and how the forgiven will be judged at one time and place, and the unforgiven will be judged at another time and place. The forgiven will receive rewards. The unforgiven will be condemned to spend eternity apart from God. And as we think about that time when the unforgiven will stand before God, it was Rousseau, uh, the 18th century French philosopher, who said, I will stand before God, and he was right. And then he says, and I will defend my conduct. He was wrong about that. So often, people talk as if they're going to give God a piece of their mind. They'll say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a word with God. There's a thing or two I need to tell God about. Sorry, it's not going to be like that. It says here that those who say those things, they're going to be speechless. They're not going to be able to say a word because they're going to know that they're guilty before God, and they won't be able to say anything, not because they can't speak, but because they know There's nothing they can say. And if verses 10 through 18 are the indictment and verse 19 is the arraignment, then verse 20 is the verdict. No one is justified in God's sight. So Paul starts off this letter. He's just hitting hard. I mean, it's been kind of rough reading these last few chapters. We've spent four weeks looking at man's denial of his need for God. And it's been an ugly picture. But we said over and over again, especially when we talked about the moral person being in denial, that you can't be good enough to go to heaven. It's not possible. And then last week, we talked about the religious person not being religious enough to go to heaven. You can't do enough good deeds or attend enough services or say enough prayers or uh, pay enough tithes, give enough tithes, or serve in enough ministries to get to heaven. Salvation. A relationship with God is a gift that God gives us when we ask him for it. When we ask, 
and when we place our faith in Jesus to save us. The law can't save us. J.B. Phillips, he paraphrases verse 20 like this. He says, It is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. The law gives us knowledge of sin. It reveals sin, but it can't save us. It can only show us how desperately each and every one of us need the Lord, to, and we need him to be saved. Paul has been describing humanity in a way that is sometimes called uh, depravity or total depravity. And I know there's different definitions that we're going to get into about that this morning. But the idea is that though we're not as bad as we could be in every area of our life, we're not as good as we should be in any area of our life. Someone once put it this way. If the color of sin were blue, every aspect of us would be some shade of blue. And some of us are in denial about that, and we think, well, I'm maybe baby blue. You know, just a real soft shade of blue. Maybe I have some uh, uh, baby blue going in my life. Maybe on my worst days, maybe it gets into, if I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, maybe it's more of a sky blue because it's just a little bit darker. I think we're moving towards maybe more the navy blue, and sometimes we're pushing the midnight blue to the point where we can't tell between is that blue or is that black. So if for what you may have one part of your life that it is sky blue, another part of your life is baby blue, another part is navy, and some parts are that midnight blue, but it's all blue. We're all blue through and through. We need God. Everyone needs God. We need his mercy. We need his grace. We need his forgiveness. That's the only way to have that relationship with him. And I know many of you, you know this. You, you've learned this. You've understood this. But this is a good reminder for us and also to help equip us as we talk to other people about the Lord, as we share our faith with others, that they understand these basic principles, these foundational issues regarding our faith. And as it comes to our relationship and a result of our relationship, we can have this transformational experience that starts on the inside and works its way out. So that throughout our lives, we are progressively becoming more and more the men and women that God has created us to be, to become more and more in the image of Christ. Let's bow our heads together.